Well, here we go, guys. We have been studying for some weeks who a man is to be and who a woman is to be biblically in order to enter into a relationship that will please God and will bring maximum satisfaction and enjoyment for the children of God, Christians. And we want to turn the corner a little bit, kind of turn the key, and focus now on the process. I promised you it was coming, and hopefully in the next few weeks we can kind of tie up some loose ends and look at a process for getting together. This is the time when your antenna should be fully extended, wondering what the Lord might be broadcasting to you. So um, I hope that you are coming with uh, open hearts and some uh, um, openness to God and His Spirit. Well, we began the series by talking about some of the biblical ways that people get wives, and we found there were some strange ways that were there in the Bible indeed. Uh, I've come across even more in our study, so I want to give you, uh, in my opinion, the top 14 ways to acquire a wife. You don't want to write this down. <laughs> the top 14 ways to acquire a wife, all biblical. Number one, find an attractive prisoner of war, bring her home, shave her head, trim her nails, and give her new clothes, then she's yours. Deuteronomy 21, 11 to 13. Number two, find a prostitute and marry her. Hosea 1, 1 to 3. Number three, find a man with seven daughters and impress him by watering his flock. Moses did that in Exodus 2, 16 to 20. If you're a girl, find a man who's sleeping, lay down at his feet, and when he wakes up, ask him to marry you. Ruth, chapter 3, verses 3 to 9. Number five, go to a party and hide. When the women come out to dance, grab one and carry her off to be your wife. That's what the Benjamites, Benjaminites did in Judges 21, 19 to 25. Here's another. Have God create you a wife while you're asleep. Now, this might cost you a rib, but nonetheless, Adam did that in Genesis 2, 19 to 24. Number seven, agree to work seven years in exchange for a woman's hand in marriage to her father. Get tricked into marrying the wrong woman, then work another seven years for the woman you wanted to marry in the first place. That's right, 14 years to get your wife. Genesis chapter 29, 15 to 30, that was Jacob. Number eight, cut off 200 foreskins off your future father-in-law's enemies and you get his daughter for a wife. David did that in 1 Samuel 18, 27. Number nine, before we begin to think anymore. Even if no one is out there, just wander around a bit and you'll definitely find someone. Cain. Have you ever thought about that? Cain got banished. Just wander around, you'll find someone. Now, uh, it's all relative, of course. <laughs> Genesis 4, 16 to 17. Some are just now getting that. Number 10. Become the emperor of a huge nation and hold a beauty contest. That's how Ahasuerus got Esther in Esther chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Number 11. When you see someone you like, go home and tell your parents, I have seen a woman. Now get her for me. <laughs> if your par parents question you, which happened in this case, simply say, get her for me. She's the one for me. Quote, that was Samson in Judges 14, 1 to 3. Number 12, kill any husband and take his wife. 
David again in 2 Samuel 11. Of course, you've got to be prepared to lose four sons as a result. Number 13, wait for your brother to die and then take his widow. That was uh, Onan and Boaz, and they were, uh, that's how Ruth got to end up sleeping at Boaz's feet. Or lastly, and what we studied all year last year, number 14, uh, don't be so picky. Just make up uh, quality with quantity like uh, Solomon did with 700 wives and 300 girlfriends or concubines. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. Now, the point of all that is this. Be very careful looking to the Bible for a model for how to get married. I didn't say that one is not there. There are several there. Be careful what you choose and which one you want to implement. Let's review for a minute. Go all the way back to our first time together. Dating, as we practice it in our Western culture, is simply not found anywhere in Scripture. The concept that we use today of finding someone, falling in love, and getting married could have very well happened, but it didn't happen the way we do it anywhere justified in the Bible. That doesn't mean it's wrong, though. Neither, though, is modern courtship. Now, I'm on thin ice here with some people, I know, but that's too bad because courtship is not a biblical concept. To compare ancient Near Eastern betrothal with modern courtship is absolutely ridiculous. If you want to call modern courtship ancient betrothal, then I've got some questions. Where's the goat that you split in half and walk through with with your parents and her parents so that you can make a contract for her life? Where is the dowry that you paid and how much did you pay? Did the father set that as a written negotiated contract that many times was negotiated before you were even born? Now, that's not to say that courtship, as many uh, define it today, is wrong. Just to say that it's not purely biblical. But the Bible does regard marriage as very normal, very biblical, and relationships with the opposite sex as a part of God's blessing to all of His creation. When discussing the relationships and uh, romance in the Scripture, the Scriptures extol men and women sharing such sharing such intimacy together. And we said at the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That's right. Not only was marriage blessed and a normal, normal in Scripture, but it's expected and extolled. There is no Hebrew word for bachelor. It was expected that you just got married. So God honors marriage uh, so much that He actually chose marriage to be the symbol and the illustration Uh, and the picture to the world of his own relationship between himself and his bride, the church. He also did that with his people in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 1 to 3. So God has always used marriage as the ultimate illustration of love between himself and people, as well as making it a gift to the people he created. Well, then being and remaining single has to be addressed. And if you want to take the time, we have... Uh, I think four tapes on that that we studied about a year and a half ago, or I guess it was two years ago now, uh, where 1 Corinthians 7 just extols the blessing of being single. You have unhindered ministry and undistracted devotion to the Lord that you can explore and implement and enjoy while you're single, and all of you should be doing that now, but that's for another study. What we're trying to do now is talk about how do you move from singleness to something else. It should be noted that marriage and family life are the normal calling in the Bible. John 2, 1-11, Jesus attended a wedding and seemed to bless it with His presence there, even offering His own gift when the wine ran out. 
Ephesians 5, 22-33, God used it, as we said, as an illustration of Himself and His bride, the church. 1 Timothy 3, 2, pastors and elders are to have solid marriages. 1 Timothy 4, 3, only a false teacher would teach that you should abstain from marriage. 1 Timothy 5, 14, young widows are encouraged to get married and to keep Satan at bay. So God expects marriage. It doesn't mean that you have to get married. It doesn't mean that you will get married. But to say that there's an expectation of Scriptures that marriage is normal is far from an overstatement. So you're saying, okay, great, Rick. If God esteems marriage, if it's normal and normative, how are we supposed to get married? Do we use those top 14 ways that the Bible actually doesn't extol but records now, you understand the difference in Scripture between description and prescription, right? It's very important. Description is just describing something that happened. Prescription is telling us what we're to do. Those stories that I read you were descriptive, not prescriptive. Please note that. There's lots of ways to get together in our world, as we've noted in past weeks. People do it differently all over the world. But there are basically two that we've highlighted that have become... Uh, the front runners and how you guys end up dating and courting and getting married today, and that's dating and courting. Dating is just simply spending time with someone of the opposite sex. Can I tell you that that's what dating is, please? Don't spend time alone with someone of the opposite sex and say, yeah, we're doing that, but we're not dating. Well, then what is a date? Oh, it's a small brown fruit. You can buy them at the grocery store. <laughs> a date is an appointment with someone of the opposite sex. It doesn't mean you're going to get married. It doesn't mean you have to keep dating. But that is a date. Don't kid yourself and think, well, we're spending lots of time together alone and the whole uh, thing, but we're not dating. Courtship, which is not as popular but is growing, especially in Christian circles, is, uh, and I quote, parentally authorized romantic relationships focused on serious contemplation and hope of future marriage. Hopefully, but not necessarily, soul romantic relationship, the soul, rather, romantic relationship before marriage, end quote. That's from uh, the uh, courtship guru, Jonathan Lindeball, who's all over the Internet with this stuff. Now, let me say from the beginning, there are strengths and weaknesses to both of these approaches. We could put up, and I have in my files, chart after chart after chart, which compare these two, strengths and weaknesses, which you should, which you shouldn't. But I firmly believe this. In the midst of all that, regardless of the model you choose, the only reason to enter, listen closely, the only reason to enter a romantic relationship with someone of the opposite sex is to test that relationship for marriage. There's no such thing, I believe, that would honor God to date just to date. To spend time enjoying a romantic relationship with no desire that that would move toward marriage. This is indeed the problem with the Western dating game, isn't it? People just date. It's like uh, uh, we used to get that um, uh, C's candy uh, big box for Christmas and, and you end up uh, grabbing all of them and just breaking them open, sticking your finger and see what it is. And if you don't like it, you just leave it in the box. People tend to date that way. You just sample people. Listen, folks, people are not created by God to be sampled. They're created to be loved and cherished and honored and nurtured. But may I dare say that there are serious problems not only with the dating model, but with the courtship model as well. It's not as biblical as some would have you believe. It's a model, not the model, and I don't even believe the best model. 
Both of these models have been raging against each other in our church, and they've been raging against each other in our ministry. And I have had my ears full of people who support both. Let me just tell you from the beginning, whichever you choose, I don't care. It doesn't matter. You know what? You can uh, kiss dating goodbye all you want, but that doesn't mean Mr. Wright's going to be waiting for you at the end of the book. doesn't mean that at all. The answer is not in the process. The answer is not in how you date. It's in who you are. That's why we spent so much time laying the groundwork that if you're the right person and you're looking for the right person, the process just flows out of that. Whichever you process, process you choose is fine. It's not that big a deal. As long as you're being godly, you're finding someone godly, it works out. You can court, you can date, you can have it arranged. If you're the right person and finding the right person, it doesn't matter. Don't look for the answer in the process. Look for the answer in the person, in who you are. Now let me say we have to be really careful here because many who hold uh, these different models think that. It's not about the model. It's about the man and the woman. Well, there are a couple of myths going around. The first is that there's only one way to do it, only one way to get married. And you know what? That's simply not true. Uh, We were sharing as shepherds and interns some of the ways that we came uh, together with our wives, and none of them are the same. They're all different. There's another myth, and that's marital success is dependent on your dating or courtship model of getting together. You know what it's not? I know people who have courted and had all their parents and pastors and elders and everybody involved far more than even they were whose marriages have crumbled. I know people who were not saved, got married out of immorality in a horrible dating relationship. The Lord comes into their life and they have model relationships now. Don't put too much weight in the process. But yet, you need to have a process. That's why we're here, right? Well, for the next two weeks, what we're going to do is kind of explore and outline some wisdom and maturity that come from uh, the Scriptures in giving us and outlining for us a process for getting together. Now, this process might be one that causes you not to get together. In fact, it might cause you to avoid some people. It might even cause you to break up. But as long as it's biblical, that's all I care about. And I promise you this, all of these principles will come from exegesis, from the Scriptures. We want to say what the Bible says, all the Bible says, but no more than the Bible says. Please, please have that commitment with me. Well, in the next few weeks, three to four, I think, we're going to cover, in three or four parts, ten principles that will provide a roadmap for a righteous relationship. Ten principles that will provide a roadmap for righteous relationships. We're only going to get to two of them today, I hope. And then we'll pick it up where we finish off next week. If you honor these principles in your relationships, the process you choose will not be an issue. These principles are across the board. They'll apply to any process at all. So let's kind of dissect these principles. The first one, and they'll all start with C, okay? The first one is the contentment principle. The contentment principle. You have to begin here. Basically, what I mean by that is this. Find your happiness in God alone. The contentment principle is find your happiness in God alone. The place to begin then in developing a righteous relationship is the ultimate relationship, which is your relationship with Christ. 
your relationship with God. If you're not solid in that relationship, all that you want the Bible to bring to bear on your relationship with someone else will be null and void. You can't have that. You have to begin with your own personal walk with Christ. That's why we've been studying that for six or eight weeks before we even get to this part. Let me say it this way. If you're not happy with God alone, you'll never be happy with someone else. If you're not happy with God alone, you'll never be happy with someone else. A relationship is not the answer to your loneliness. It's not the answer to being alone. God is the answer to your loneliness, and God is the answer when you're alone. Philippians 4, Paul talked about this in reference to being rich and poor. In Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13, he says, But I rejoice greatly in the Lord, that now, as you have revived your concern for me, talking to the Philippians, indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity. He's saying, I, had, I needed money, I needed a place to live, and a place to stay, and resources, and you were concerned, Philippians, and you've been concerned. Thank you for being concerned about that. Now he says a little footnote in verse 11. Philippians 4. Not that I speak from want or lack, for I have learned to be content. What a great statement. I've learned to be content. What does that tell you? Is contentment uh, uh, obtained by osmosis? Just by hanging out with content people or by putting the Bible inside your pillowcase and sleeping on it overnight? No, contentment is learned, folks. You have to learn it. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also now know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. So there it is again. Contentment's a secret. You've got to learn it. Of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And here is the secret. I can do all things, say it with me, through Christ who strengthens me. That's not something you say when you're about to uh, enter a pole vault competition so you can get your highest uh, mark ever. This is a, a classic, classic doctrine of contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me means nothing in my circumstances is going to whack me out. I'm content if I'm single. I'm content if I'm married. I'm content with children. I'm content without children, with two or three or four. I'm content because of my relationship with God, not because of my relationship with someone else. Every person you ever enter into a relationship with, folks, is going to disappoint you. They're going to hurt you. They're going to wound you deeply. The only relationship that's ultimately safe from harm is Christ. And when you have that relationship, then all of the others become safe from harm because you see them as God's chess pieces on the board of your life to get you in a position to learn who you need to be and the areas of Christ-likeness that you need to work on. 1 Timothy 6, talking about people preaching for uh, uh, getting rich and trying again to find stuff that will make them happy. But the principle is still the same in 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we've brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. One of the biggest mistakes singles make is to believe that a relationship will really make them happy. You know what that is, guys? That's called idolatry. If you think a relationship with that girl or that guy will really bring you the happiness that your soul wants, 
That's idolatry. Can it bring you happiness? Oh, yeah. A lot of happiness? You bet. I am so thrilled to be married to my wife. I could talk, as you know, the rest of the week about that. But I wouldn't be happy in my relationship with Kim to the extent that God wants me to be without my relationship with the Lord being intact and being on track. Thinking that anything will bring you satisfaction and happiness other than God is to make that object an idol in your life. And we learned that over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, didn't we? Remember, it's a verse we keep coming back to, Psalm 86:11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. If God has not given you a relationship right now, you know what that means? It's not good for you. Don't manipulate it. Don't get out of bounds of His moral will because you want to so please your delights and your desires. Well, how can you be content and uh, make contentment, rather, a priority over relationships? How can you make contentment your priority over relationships? Let's say it this way. First of all, you've got to pray. You have to pray about it. You need to say, Lord, you know I'm lonely. Lord, you know I'm alone. Lord, I need help in this. I need my heart satisfied and stayed in this. Please help me. You have to take these longings to the Lord. Most of us take them to our circle of friends far more and far uh, before we ever take them to Christ. When's the last time you prayed about your desire for a mate? And said, Lord, please give me, please, Lord, give me the mate of your choice in your time, in your way, and make it so obvious that I'll know. A second way you can make contentment a priority over your relationships is use your singleness for the Lord. We've talked about that from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Use your singleness for the Lord. How do you do that? There's two ways, and you can study this in 1 Corinthians 7. You have unhindered opportunities to serve Christ and undistracted devotion to the Lord while you're single. That gets a lot muddier when you get married and have a mortgage and children and all that comes with being married. Use your singleness for ministry. Not sitting around pining for what you don't have, which leads to our next one. Don't dwell on a relationship you don't have. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Don't sit around dwelling over the fact that you're not dating him or her if you're not. That's useless mental energy. And the only way you can do that is lastly, by directing your love toward God. Is God the object of your affections and the object of your care and concern and the object of your delights and your interest? If He is, then He'll fulfill that other need in His way and in His time. But if you want to know how to dwell, uh, not dwell rather, on your own loneliness, dwell on God. Focus on Him. Read books. Listen to tapes. Go to church as often as you can. Be around and in the flow of truth. Be discipled. Make your fix and stay God. That's the kind of person who will be attractive to the right kind of person, right? Well, that's pretty simple, the contentment principle. If you're not content as a single, you'll never be content when you get married. And I've said it before. We'll say it again. Nothing changes when you walk back out the church after you've walked in to get married. You're the same person you were when you are leaving the church as you were, girls, when you were walking down the aisle and guys, as you were standing at the end waiting on your bride. Nothing changes when you make a vow except that you made a vow. Be content. Develop that. There's a second principle I want us to spend the rest of our time on, and that's the conversion principle. 
the conversion principle. And what, by that I mean only pursue a Christian. Only pursue a Christian. Let me say that I'm speaking to Christians. If you're an unbeliever, I don't mean for you to only pursue a Christian. Hopefully in a minute you'll know why. If you're a believer, do not pursue or date or court anyone who's not a believer and a growing believer. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18 outlined this principle for us. Paul said, Do not be bound together. The word there is yoked. And what a yoke is, is a big giant 4x4. Four four. It's a big piece of wood that what they would do is, is carve out in like a half moon shapes on both sides of this big piece of wood places to put this piece of wood on an animal's back. The book of Deuteronomy says, Don't bind unequal animals together. In other words, don't put a big solid ox there with a goat. They can't pull the same. They'll be exasperated with each other. They can't accomplish the same purpose. Paul says, don't be yoked or bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership, he says, has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? That's an ancient name for Satan. Or what has a believer, listen to this, in common with an unbeliever? In other words, if a Christian can be in a close, intimate relationship with an unbeliever, something is wrong with your faith. You should have very little in common with an unbeliever. If you have a lot in common with an unbeliever, something's wrong with your faith. What agreement has the temple of God? That's what we are with idols. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell with them and walk with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Be separate from unbelievers. Now, what do you mean by this, Paul? What do you mean by this, Rick? Are you talking about dissociating from all unbelievers? No. We're supposed to accomplish the Great Commission like that, aren't we? Build relationships with unbelievers, share Christ with them, see them one to Christ and groan in the, in the love and the nurture of the Lord. What this is talking about is a, a close spiritual enterprise. And there is no closer spiritual enterprise than marriage. I think he's also talking about here about uh, work. You say, does that mean I don't work with unbelievers? No, but it does mean you don't go buy a business with one. The Holy Spirit could not have been more clear here. A Christian is not to be yoked or bound together with an unbeliever in any spiritual enterprise. The point is simple then. Don't marry an unbeliever. But wait, Rick. It says don't be yoked. Doesn't that mean married? What about dating? Should it, isn't it okay to date an unbeliever just to get experience, just to know? I believe this text prohibits that as well. Now let's think about it a second. Let me walk you through this. The idea of dating an unbeliever. Ephesians 2 tells us that an unbeliever is what? Dead in his trespasses and sins, correct? They're walking spiritual zombies. And a believer is alive to Christ. So then, dating an unbeliever is spiritually dating the dead. If you're dating an unbeliever, if you're interested in one, you can go out on a date, sit at Marie Calendars, the waitress comes, Hi, how you doing? I'd like to introduce you to this spiritual corpse, my date. You say, that's a little graphic, Rick. Well, not as graphic as Paul put it. 
They're dead in, in trespasses and sins. You're alive. There is no fellowship between light and darkness of an intimate nature except to share the light with the darkness. Furthermore, the Bible affirms that an unbeliever is the enemy of God. You're dating and pursuing and liking an enemy of your Savior. How can you like someone who hates God? You say, that's strong language, Rick. No, that's biblical language. Someone who hasn't embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior is indeed the enemy of God and hates God. How can you like someone who hates God? Romantically, that is. Obviously, we need to have some ministry and affection for the unbeliever and, uh, in a witnessing format. Which brings us to this. Why in the world do some Christians end up dating unbelievers? I tried to catalog this and think it through. Why do some Christians end up dating unbelievers? I think this will be insightful for you. The first is that uh, it's a supposed missionary effort. You heard of missionary dating? Come on, Rick. She's beautiful, and she needs to be saved. In fact, I need to introduce her to the Lord. Well, can that happen? Sure. Should it happen? Why don't you introduce her to some of your girlfriends who can lead her to Christ, and then she'll be someone that you can minister to. Don't missionary date. That's the same issue of light and darkness that Paul described in 2 Corinthians 6. Another reason that Christians date, some Christians end up dating unbelievers, is the interest factor. You say, what do you mean the interest factor? Well, because the unbeliever is the only one showing interest in you, you like them. What do you mean by that? Rick, no other Christian guys are paying attention to me, so why not? I mean, wouldn't it be better to be married and even married to an unbeliever or dating an unbeliever than to be lonely? We just talked about the contentment principle that answers that question. Just because someone shows interest in you doesn't mean that it's the Lord's will for you. In fact, listen up, students. That may be one of the finest tests the Lord gives you to check your heart before Him. is to give you opportunities to say no to something that physically, that emotionally would be somehow attractive and yet spiritually is repulsive to the Lord. Another issue is spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. What do you mean by that? Well, there's this spiritual blindness that comes over. It's called infatuation sometime, where you're entering into this relationship with an unbeliever, with an unbeliever, and you begin saying things like this. You know, I, I think they really are believers deep down. They're just struggling. You know, I think they really do love the Lord. They just, they just need to show it a little more. You know, you're think you're talking yourself into their spirituality. Don't be spiritually blind. And a final reason why some Christians end up dating unbelievers is pure, unadulterated rebellion. I've known people who've done this just to get back at their parents. I know people who've done this to get back at people in their Bible study or their shepherd or their pastor. I've known others to do it just to get attention. It's still wrong. Relationship with an unbeliever is the most serious mistake you can make in a relationship. Can I say that again? 
Pursuing a relationship with an unbeliever is the most serious mistake you can make as a Christian in a relationship. If you don't choose a person who loves the Lord at least as much as you do, there is a disaster in your future. How do you know that, Rick? Well, let me give you a few examples. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. I want you to see these. You might even want to mark them for further study. In 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, if you remember from our study of Ecclesiastes, what is 1 Kings 11? That's the last chapter we find Solomon in the narrative section of Scripture. Solomon, given all the wisdom in the world, all that he wanted, used his wisdom not to rule the people and decide between good and evil, but he used it how? For his own sensual pleasures. And because of some uh, treaties with other countries and, and other nations, he ended up having 700 wives and 300 girlfriends or concubines or women given just for the purpose of propagating babies that would make uh, your uh, children now the cousins of an opposing army so you wouldn't fight against each other. Verse 1, chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved, underline it, loved many foreign women. Now, footnote, God had told him, do not, they'll turn your heart away from me. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not be yoked with them, associate with them, neither shall they associate with you. Why? Here it is. For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Highlight it. Solomon held fast to these. How? In love. Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Now, lest you sit there and be confident and arrogant that you somehow have the spiritual capacity to override the wicked and sinful and dark influences of a person in a relationship, you're not as wise as Solomon. Solomon had his heart ripped out of his chest, as it were, by women rather than by God. Solomon fell. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25. David, who actually uh, uh, can be criticized for his choice of women as well and the reasons that he chose them, First chapter, I won't read the whole thing. If we had time, I'd love to read this whole chapter and walk you through it. Um, basically, there was a man named Nabal. Now, I find it interesting that his name was Nabal because in Hebrew that means what? You Hebrew scholars. A fool! I have to say that for the Seminoid guys so they have a chance to answer with the vocabulary sometimes. He's a fool. How would you like to name your child? Hello, fool. I, I've tried. I'm going to be honest with you. Let me step aside from the pulpit for a minute. I've tried my whole... Um, ministerial life to figure out the whole naming thing in the Old Testament, naming, naming the fool. I don't understand it, okay? God did it. Anyway, this girl, Abigail, is married to a guy named Nabal, whose name means fool. Well, he uh, goes out mocking David and his men and picks a fight and the whole thing and is going to ambush him and has this whole thing happening. And Abigail ends up uh, uh, finding out about it and preventing the whole thing. You say, what's the point? Abigail had a fool unbelieving fool for a husband. Can you imagine, ladies, 
going to prayer every day for your unsaved husband and his foolishness. Pick it up in verse 36. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast at his house. This is when she's going to come back and tell Nabal, uh, look, the, the deal is up with uh, getting at David. And Nabal's heart was very merry within him. Why? For he was drunk. Very drunk, it says. So she did not tell him anything at all until morning light. That's a smart thing. But it came about in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal that his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him so that he became as stone. What things did she tell him about the fact that the, the whole jig was up with him having an ambush for David and his men? Then, very interesting, verse 38. About ten days later, it happened that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Ladies, if you end up getting together with a fool, with an unbeliever, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The ultimate fool is an unbeliever. Then you have become foolish yourself. I can't resist, uh, even if it takes some time. Verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord! who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal, yep, a real proposal, to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail and Car- uh, at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. I guess that's another option. She arose and bowed her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. What's the point? Abigail had to plead the cause of her foolish husband before her Lord. How would you like that to be your primary spiritual enterprise, ladies? Men as well. How would you like to marry an unbelieving wife and have to have all of your prayers occupied with the salvation and the foolishness of an unbeliever? One more place, one more example. Job. The book of Job. Chapter 2, verse 7. You know the story. Satan approaches God, says Job is only uh, prosperous and worships you because you've blessed him. God says, okay, I'll show you. Uh, uh, teach you a lesson, Satan. He takes the blessings away from Job. Uh, there's disaster. He's losing uh, all of his livestock, his property. He's losing children. Then he loses his health. He's actually sitting in a corner with, the, with broken pieces of pottery, scraping boils off of his arms. Pick it up in verse 7. Let's see how encouraging his wife was. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a pot sheared, a broken piece of pottery, to scrape himself while sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? The Hebrew word can mean faith. Do you still have faith in this God who's done this to you? Then she says this, Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? 
And in this way, Job did not sin with his lips. You see, it goes both ways. Abigail had a husband she had to deal with. And Job, boy, did he have a woman to deal with, didn't he? Can you imagine your spiritual life being actually dragged, by, uh, dragged down by someone that you're dating or married to? What mom said is so true. Every date is a potential mate. Be careful who you spend time with. Living with a godless spouse has to be one of the most horrific possibilities for a believer. Not impossible. First Peter 3 says there's a way to handle that. But if you have a choice on this side of marriage, students, make a wise choice. Those are biblical examples. I have personal ones as well. Young lady who recently was disciplined out of our church because after she had played the charade, got into a marriage, confessed she wasn't a Christian, didn't want anything to do with the Lord, pursued an adulterous affair, and left her husband. I know of several who are in a marriage right now with an unbeliever having a very difficult time. We need to pray for them, support them, not chastise them. We need to be the church of God and the family for them. No question, but students, you are on this side of the commitment. You're on this side of the vow. Make certain your vow. Make certain it's the right person. Make certain you're the right person. So how can you avoid pursuing an unbeliever then? Can I give you a couple of points on this? How can you avoid pursuing an unbeliever? First, simply live a righteous life. Live a righteous life. If you're living righteously, then an unbeliever won't be attracted to you for, the, for those reasons. If an unbeliever can develop a relationship with you romantically without seeing that your values and your standards are incredibly night and day different from theirs, something's wrong with your faith. Live righteously. Be a constant confrontation in the people around you of a godly life. Not an obnoxious one, a righteous, humble, gentle, pure one. Live a righteous life. And unbelievers won't be attracted to you romantically. And if they are, they can't get very far without seeing that they're not going to get out of a relationship what unrighteous people pursue in relationships. You have a different standard. You have a different value set. Secondly... Don't get too close to an unbeliever of the opposite sex. Be careful, guys. Don't get too close with an unbeliever of the opposite sex right now. Where? At work. Working at a restaurant. You're closing the restaurant with them. No one's around. You're having fun. And something starts swelling in your heart. Wow. This person's really neat. Wow. This person's really attractive in one way or the other. Guard your heart. Even up to, listen, look up. Even up to the point of quitting and finding another job, guard your heart. Put a fence around your heart. Make sure that people uh, around you who are believers are looking into that with you. Which is our next point. Stay accountable about your feelings. Stay accountable about your feelings. 
If you find yourself drawn to an unbeliever romantically, would you tell someone who you respect spiritually? Tell your parents if they're believers. Tell uh, your shepherds. Tell me. Tell an elder. Tell a pastor. Tell someone who can hold that in check. Don't let it drift too far to where you already get attached and now you get a heartbreak with the dissolving of the relationship. Flip side of that. Next. Make sure that the person you like, you're attracted to, in other words, is affirmed by the godly people in your life. Make sure that the person you like is affirmed by the godly people in your life. Like who, Rick? Parents. We're going to have a whole point on this coming up in a few weeks. But your parents ought to be involved with that. Whether you think that's courtship or dating or what, it doesn't matter. I don't even care about the models. Your parents ought to be involved with that. What if my parents are an unbeliever? I still think there's a level where they should be involved with that up to the point where they're discouraging you from pursuing a Christian. And we've had that happen, actually. Your shepherds, your friends, your pastors, elders. Have people checking in with you. Make sure that if you like someone, guys, don't keep it a secret. Don't keep that a secret. We think that's some shy little sheepish thing. Tell someone who loves Christ who can tell your, check your heart to see whether that attraction is a good idea or not. And then finally, look, we've said this all along, look for the right kind of things in the right kind of person. If you do that, that's how you can avoid dating an unbeliever for sure. Look for the right kind of things in the right kind of person. And we've just spent the last month and a half studying that. By the way, it's not as simple as just not dating an unbeliever. You need to only pursue a believer who's pursuing Christ with a whole heart. If you've got your choice over someone who loves Christ and is pursuing Christ, over someone who just walked the aisle or prayed a prayer, what are you thinking? Find someone who's pursuing Christ. Someone said it this way. You need to run as hard and as fast as you can toward the Lord Jesus with all your might and then look to your left or right and see who's there with you and that's who you ought to date. It's a great quote. How are you doing with your commitment? Rather, your contentment. Are you content? Have you placed a great weight of value on a relationship? Have you made it something that it can't deliver? Are you content? What about the conversion principle? Are you only attracted to converted people? Are there relationships in your life that you need to deal with this week and back out of them and back away from them? You know what, folks? Look up. This may be very difficult. You might need to go to someone this week based on 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and say, I need to ask your forgiveness. An unbeliever, say, I need to ask your forgiveness. I've allowed our hearts to get closer than my precious Lord Jesus would desire. Please forgive me. And if you want to know more about my Lord and my values, I'd love to introduce you to and then find someone in our group who can talk to them about the Lord so that you're not involved in a missionary dating relationship. The contentment principle and the conversion principle. These are the first of ten principles that I promise you if you implement in your life, you're going to have a marriage that will bless God and the world can look to and say, that's what Jesus and His followers must relate like. Let's pray. Father, You have been so kind to us to give us Your Word and Your truth. I pray for these students that You would make them men and women who are content, men and women who are stayed on Jesus more than anyone else, and that You would make them 
discerning with their hearts and their affections so that they only allow them to drift towards someone of like mind and like affections. Make us all check our hearts here, Lord. I beg, I beg you, Lord, not to let anyone in this room end up in a year, five years, a decade from now in a relationship with an unbeliever that they could avoid now. Give us great commitment and great hearts of repentance, Lord. We long to please you and be that generation we, we sung of it early, about earlier, the generation who seeks you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.